and welcome to Disrupt Podcast. I'm Gabriella Mulligan. And I'm Tom Jackson. Every fortnight, Disrupt Podcast brings you all the latest from the continent's startup ecosystem and interviews with special guests. This episode is investor heavy as we meet the principles of two new funds on the continent. But before that, here's all the news from the last two weeks. an amicable resolution to a controversial row that broke out in South Africa's startup ecosystem a few months back. South African startup Custos Media Technologies and VC firm Havike have ended a dispute regarding Havike's investment in Custos, with Disrupt Africa understanding some form of investment has now been formalised. It was back in April when Custos, which combats digital piracy by embedding Bitcoin bounties as watermarks within videos and movies, was sued for millions of dollars in the Western Cape High Court by Havike, which claimed the startup backtracked on an investment agreement. Both sides claim they're in the right, but to avoid a damaging court case, the issue went to mediation and the two parties have now reached an agreement. It remains to be seen how awkward board meetings are in future. In other good news from South Africa, local startup MyFanPark, which allows users to request a personalised shout-out video from their favourite celeb, has announced a merger with the Silicon Valley-based Starzona to form a leading global celebrity engagement platform with a footprint across Africa, Europe, North America and the Indian subcontinent. On to funding news, in a week where startup funding in Africa, according to our numbers, passed $600 million for 2020, comfortably a record. The Future Africa Fund, launched earlier this year by Andela and Flutterwave co-founder Ian Aboyeji, announced it made nine investments in Q3 to take its portfolio size to 28 startups. Track all the way back to episode one of Disrupt Podcast for our interview with Ian, or E, on his hopes and dreams for Future Africa. Nigerian consumer credit startup Credpal, meanwhile, has raised a $1.5 million funding round as it launches its range of credit cards. There was a lot of investment news from South Africa too. Car subscription company Planet42, which helps individuals ignored by banks to get access to personal vehicles, announced a $10 million debt funding round to help it scale operations. There are also rounds for customer journey management startup Incuba, access management startup Let Me In, and Locumbase, an online platform that brings medical practices and locum practitioners together. Elsewhere, there are rounds for Egyptian startup Xab, a daily fantasy sports platform, and Expandcart, an e-commerce and retail platform, as well as Tunisian customer experience startup Onboard. Also backed for Ivory Coast and Ghana-based waste management startup Kaliba, and Zambia's Wid Energy, a for-profit social enterprise dedicated to female empowerment and the expansion of affordable energy access. A host of new investment vehicles also opened their doors in the last couple of weeks. Foundation Ventures launched its debut Egypt-focused fund, while industrialist Adam Malai launched a $1 million fund to provide entrepreneurs with capital to kickstart or expand their enterprises. The Lagos-based co-creation hub launched the CC Hub Syndicate, an investment vehicle empowering investment firms and high net worth individuals all over the world to co-invest alongside the hub in African startups. New VC firm Sherpa Ventures, meanwhile, launched its debut fund, dedicated to investing in pre-seed tech startups in Africa. Sherpa is backed by several notable founders and angels and has already made its first investments. We'll hear from co-founder Aaron Fu later in the podcast. For now, though, let's focus on another new fund that opened its doors recently. The Africa-focused VC firm Acuity was formally launched in January by Lexi Nowitzki, once of Singularity Investments. Having acquired the Singularity portfolio, including the likes of Paystack, Migo and Mpharma, Nowitzki is now making further investments under the Acuity brand. The company has executed six deals this year and operates with a data-driven approach that enables smart investment decisions and supports investee company growth. I caught up with Lexi to find out more. Hello, 
So let's start with your big news. You recently launched your new Africa-focused VC firm, Acuity. Congratulations. Uh, thanks so much, Gabriella. Yeah, it's, it's really a continuation of what we've been doing for several years at Singularity, but now brought over another brand. Um, great team on board and really excited. Yeah, can you tell us a bit more about how the idea for the new firm came about, um, your immediate plans, and kind of do you have a mission? Yeah, so while we were at Singularity, we really saw an opportunity to try to do something more unique on value add, um, and that was adding a data science capability to our team. So we felt that both um, early stage companies we're lacking local data science talent at an affordable rate, and we wanted to be able to use our, our value creation to really help them build up that team and work on specific projects that they needed. Um, likewise, our data science team is helping us with our own investment strategies. So we take a look at companies' data and come up with meaningful insights that we think are relevant for the early stage tech ecosystem. So you have this emphasis on data-driven investing. And as you mentioned, you have an in-house data science team. Can you tell us more about how specifically you're leveraging data? Is it automated? Is it AI? Um, how does that work? Yeah, so it's a it's definitely learning in process and we'll become smarter as we go along. But right now we're trying to take pretty unstructured data sets, uh, clean those data sets and come up with analysis on how companies are engaging with their customers and how those customers uh, like their platform and what they're using it for. So we'll look at things like cohort analysis and how those individual cohorts are increasing their spending on a platform over time or the churn rates. And we kind of liken this to um, financial accounting for traditional firms, but in early stage firms, as you know, you can't necessarily rely on revenue metrics alone. And there's a lot more information in, in underlying data that really makes sense. So that's how we look at it from an investment point of view. So you're focusing more on data as it pertains to the, the operations of the company you're looking at? Yeah, both. So we also would like to take a look at uh, how those companies can leverage their own data to improve their strategy and understand their customer base better. Um, we also build them unique tools. Uh, so this can be anything from a credit scoring model to a categorization engine, anything that those companies might specifically want to enhance their own internal operations. So besides working on uh, you know, opening up our network for business development, helping support with governance, uh, supporting with strategy decisions. We also wanted to have a real technical aspect to our value creation for these companies. I mean, I'd like to think that all VC investing is data-driven. Um, is that not the case? And, and can you just go into a bit how what you're doing is quite different from, from what exists currently in the, in the VC market? So I think a lot of uh, venture capital firms actually hammer on um, their success has been driven by the ability for them to identify high quality teams and even leverage off of their gut. Um, we see this kind of investing as having a lot of underlying bias. And I think you've seen that bias come through in the numbers where White founders tend to get more venture capital funding. Um, Male-founded teams tend to get more venture capital funding. So we wanted to add a, another layer of quantitative analysis, um, making it more about the numbers and 
making our decision process a little bit smarter. Um, we don't think that this is a, a, a magic ball by any means. But as we start to look at more companies in the ecosystem, we should be able to compare these data sets. Um, and Gabriella, one thing I didn't mention is that when we uh, clean these data sets and come up with uh, valuable insights, even if we don't invest in the company, we're giving these insights back to those companies to help them drive their own strategy and understand their customer base better. So we're also helping the overall ecosystem, not just our investee companies. And so that's an interesting idea. Would you say that uh, data is your internal anti-bias strategy? It absolutely is. It's it's our internal anti-bias strategy, um, and it's also our intellectual property. So we're building uh, modules to be able to understand these data sets better, be able to do it more efficiently. And as investors, we're always talking about the importance of scale in our underlying investee companies. But we also think that this could really help also scale up the investment process itself. Um, of course, we'll take time. We don't expect this to happen overnight, uh, especially given a lot of the tech companies are still in the very early days of their revenue creation. But we think over the long term, that'll really be the case. And so how would you say um, this data-driven approach is impacting who you invest in? So we've generally had a strategy that we can invest in companies that are three to six months through revenue. So, so quite early stage companies. We've even found now with the data-driven approach that we've been able to look earlier at companies that maybe don't necessarily have revenue yet, but are engaging with those customers um, to see how those customers are reacting to the platform. So we're able to even reach earlier into into the life, life cycle of the companies. Um, but also, you know, the, the sort of companies that really fit this strategy are companies that, uh, although they might be B2B as sort of their direct customer, their end user is really the consumer. So companies that fit into that might be payments companies, microfinance companies, uh, companies doing payroll, uh, HR management, that sort of thing. So, so really kind of these um, B2B to C focused platforms fit very nicely in this strategy. So are you actually getting your data science team involved before you even make that decision to invest or not? Yeah, so our data science team tries to get involved uh, really quite early. Um, you know, we're working with these, these companies on their data sets and, and, by the way, making sure that everything is, stays internally. Um, we never share any of that data with any other party uh, and it's all anonymized and cleaned. Um, but right from the start, our data science team is involved in the investment process, uh, looking at the data and working alongside our investment team uh, when we come up with a conclusion of whether to invest or not. Okay, so just to change focus slightly, um, from a practical perspective, can you tell us if you have any learnings or tips, so to speak, on when it comes to launching a new VC firm in Africa? Yeah, so I have been out in Nigeria for about eight years and launched Singularity a couple years into that uh, journey um, and had some, some of my own personal learnings on launching a venture capital firm um, as well as doing deals and what worked in, in terms of timing in the local ecosystem. Um, 
I think that venture capital firms are in Africa are in a tough spot because a lot of our investors don't yet understand the venture capital landscape, meaning the limited partners that have traditionally done Africa private equity are themselves just starting to learn venture. Um, that means it's a slower fundraising cycle for us. Um, but likewise, venture capital investors that have done venture capital globally still are learning about Africa. I, I think both of these things are starting to shift a bit, but that's certainly been um, a big focus of us, how we can try to bridge those learnings um, from both of those two groups to make them understand this subsector. Because it is a, absolutely a huge, huge opportunity. Um, secondarily, you know, I come from a strong investment background, but I've never run a company before and was setting up acuity after singularity. I really felt that it was important to have an operational partner that had worked in technology companies before built technology companies and really could add something unique to, to the story and also really help those investee companies grow. Um, because it's not all about doing the good investments. It's really making sure that us as a venture capital firm creates value for those companies. And that brings us even better deals in the future if we can build that, that story and that um, track record. Obviously, you define Acuity as Africa-focused. What does that actually mean? What does it take for a startup to be African for you? Yeah, so... Africa is a big continent, right? And it's a bunch of very diverse markets with uh, their own cultures and demographics. Um, we do believe that homegrown solutions are important and focus on a couple key markets to start, those being Nigeria, Ghana, also quite interested in Egypt. But think that all of these uh, companies need to look beyond their own borders and expand across the continent. And you've already seen that with a lot of our investee companies like M Pharma and Flutterwave um, and Migo, who, who's even expanded now beyond Africa. But for us, being uh, African is definitely um, being local. That's, that's true to our DNA. And we want to back local founders that are living and operating and solving the problems that they're seeing every single day. Um, but we also want those uh, founders to be uh, focused on growing their company beyond their own borders. Um, and a lot of the verticals that we're focused on really are ripe for, for those sort of business models. Speaking to founders in Africa, we often um, have them refer to having to work harder given that they're African, having to over-execute, and when it comes to equity, having to give away an African discount, so to speak, to account for the added risks of operating on the continent. From your investor perspective, and an investor with quite a lot of experience in African operations, what's your take on this? Do you still require an Africa discount? So I think an African discount is there because of currency risk, uh, which is still a major issue across markets. However, um, I like to hammer on this conversation of risk, which comes a lot up a lot with my investors, is we are replicating business models that have been proven time and again all across the world um, with super talented local founders, uh, we're reducing, if not almost eliminating, business case risk. 
So if you're comparing an Africa focused venture, um, which by the way, tends to have a much lower valuation with the risk of investing in a highly competitive, oversaturated market like the US, uh, I would any day put my money on those Africa ventures. And can you leave us with a note on the state of VC um, investing in Africa at the moment? What's needed to advance the ecosystem and what are your predictions for the coming years? So we've seen already in in 2020 that venture funding has surpassed last year, but it's not just about the funding anymore. We're seeing the exits. Uh, We had a great exit in our portfolio with Paystack, and there's been several others across the continent. Um, I do still see a couple of subsectors as as being quite attractive over the next couple of years, and those are focused really on the infrastructure of the larger tech ecosystem. Um, That's certainly uh, fintech and financial inclusion, logistics, and enterprise software and platforms. Um, I do think that the tech ecosystem locally needs more investors that are on the ground able to back companies from the very early stages. Uh, We've seen a lot of international interest in the later stages to help those companies grow, and I think that's very welcome. But only the local investors can provide that value to really help those early stage companies on the ground with their operations in a local context. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today, Lexi. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gabriella. there on how taking a database approach to investing in startups and helping them achieve growth is the best way to counter bias and encourage positive outcomes for everyone. It'll be interesting to see if more VC firms follow Acuity's lead in this regard. Whatever the approach, Acuity joins a growing pool of funds investing at the early stages of a startup's lifespan, a scenario that looked unlikely just a few years ago. The newest addition to this group is Sherpa Ventures, founded by ex-Nest and Mest man Aaron Fu, former Uber Africa launcher Alistair Curtis, and one-time Iroko exec Nikhil Patel. Sherpa has raised a $1 million fund that will invest small tickets in young companies and work with them over a period of months to help them grow. The company, which also hopes to follow on, is bringing together a community of successful African tech founders, such as Twiggers Grant Brook and Ilara House Emilian Popa, to help them give back to the ecosystem. I chatted with Aaron, who said Sherpa is more than just a venture fund. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom, for having me. Always a pleasure. Tell us a bit more about Sherpa Ventures, how it came about and how it works. So, so Sherpa Ventures really came about through, you know, I saw this like really huge gap where, you know, early stage founders are just not able to raise the, the large enough rounds that a lot of their peers and, and other markets are able to. I mean, you hear stories of like, you know, fa- friends and family rounds in the UK and, and, and in the US sort of, you know, being $100,000, $200,000 easily. Um, but I think that's really not available in Africa. And I think if you look at 
a lot of the research that's out there, yes, you know, funding has increased overall, but a lot of that is still very much stacked at sort of Series A and sort of late seed. Um, we still think there's so much more to get done at sort of the, the pre-seed level. Um, and so really wanted to do something more there. Um, and then simultaneously, you know, with with all the recent successes that, that Africa's startup ecosystem has been having, there's increasing interest um, from from founders, former founders to, to really start investing in the next generation. And, and surprisingly enough, you know, many of them, while having a lot of experience raising funds for themselves, haven't had a lot of investing experience. So, you know, we saw a really good opportunity here to bring in not just their capital, but as a result, you know, really incentivize them to be a part of a community and, and help the next generation of founders grow. So it was a confluence of a, of a range of things that happened. Is it a positive sign of the growing maturity of the African startup ecosystem that we're starting to see notable founders give back, if you like? And, um, and, and secondly, what, what kind of additional benefits does having founders like that as part of the fund bring to portfolio companies? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think thinking back, you know, six, seven years ago, you really wouldn't have this sort of like critical mass of, of founders on the continent who have raised, you know, their B rounds, their C rounds. They really just were, were not that many, right? But like right now, because of the, the tremendous growth we've seen over the last couple of years, there are a good cadre of them out there. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, what that really adds to, to, a, to a startup that, especially if you're a first time founder, is really having someone on your cap table and on your side, you know, who has walked the entire journey journey, right? Who knows which investors to work with, which ones not to, which partners to work with, how to navigate certain regulations, you know, where, you know, where the potholes are on, on, on this climb. So, so I think it's, it's really, really important to have, um, you know, the kind of people um, who have backed you, who have actually walked that journey before and not just kind of hypothesize about what that journey could look like. Um, and I think finally also empathy, right? Like I think, you know, we, take a lot of feedback from, from the founders who have backed us, who we've been really lucky to have join us um, around how we should run this, right? How we should run the due diligence process, how we should run all of that. So I think, you know, having people on your side who've actually been where you are uh, is, is just also important. How is the actual process of working with portfolio companies going to work? I mean, as far as I'm aware, the founding team all have other jobs. Obviously, I think a lot of your investors have other full-time commitments. So, I mean, talk me through this sort of six to nine month process that you're going to be embarking on with portfolio companies. Sure. So, so our, our, our magic really sort of lies at, at the very beginning. So we, we work very closely um, with the founder to kind of scope out you know, what, what we'll be doing with them over the next six to nine months. Um, and then we didn't, we then tap into the community to figure out, okay, um, you know, founder X has an issue with financial regulation in East Africa, which of our, which of our LPs, um, has a lot of experience in that. Okay. That's going to be worked on two months from now before that something else needs to get worked on. Uh, maybe our venture partner in South Africa can jump on and think a little bit about how, you know, they can actually get from West Africa to East Africa. Um, so a lot of it is around that initial scoping, um, and then we'll go into our, our networks um, and our community to, to pull in the support that's needed over, over that six to nine month period. And hopefully during that period, also get to know um, the business and, and the company a little bit more um, before deciding to, to pull in next. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, yes, like we all have um, a lot to do in, 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 our, in, our, in our regular jobs, but, you know, together, 
with a little bit of time, we're able to, you know, really create a sort of mishmash human being um, that's able to be full time on, on, on the startup and what they're doing. Yeah, there's a lot of African startups out there creating mishmash human beings to, to, to just about get through. Um, it's a lot of fun, uh, up to $50,000 in each startup. It, it, it sounds like you could build a fairly sizable portfolio quite quickly. Um, what kind of businesses are you looking at? Are there any particular verticals or geographies? Yes, so so we, we will try and focus on the typical markets of, of Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. And I think primarily that's because where we see, where we understand the most, also where we see sort of like the most amount of activity happening and a lot of existing infrastructure that's come before them to make building the next business um, a little bit easier. Um, in terms of what we're looking at, we're trying to stay away from consumer businesses and, and focusing a lot more um, on B2B businesses, particularly those looking to build digital infrastructure um, for other businesses to build upon. So we're particularly looking for, for companies that startups can build on top of, um, that large corporates can build on top of, as well as you know micro and small enterprises to be able to you know use to you know uh, strengthen their businesses as well. So we, we we're trying to very much focus on on companies that are enabling other companies to, to do better. What's behind that focus on B two B as opposed to B two C? Because I think that's a bit of a growing a growing trend among particularly early stage funds at the moment. <laughs> sure. I, I mean, like, I think for, for a large part, you know, we, we, we think that small businesses really remain the bedrock in a lot of these economies that, 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 that we are focusing on. And, you know, especially with, with, with COVID coming through, there's been an increasing push towards digitalization. And I, we think that there will be a continued um, set of incentives and reasons um, for these businesses to increasingly adopt digital tools. And these businesses I'm talking about, like, you know, all the way from your small business to like your larger medium enterprise, like your supermarket chains, all the way through the large banks, right? There's a big push towards adopting more digital tools, whether that's something to streamline the back end or whether that's uh, to create a stronger user experience for their own consumers in the front end. Um, we think at the end of the day, a lot of these brands own the consumer in terms of trust, in terms of actually being there to interface with them. Um, and, and so we really see that there's a huge potential for tools to make what they do even better. So we're not looking to replace um, brands that uh, consumers really trust, but, but really help existing brands and businesses um, who already sell to these consumers do better. Fantastic. So you've got two, two investments already. Um, just tell me a little bit about them and what attracted you to uh, OnePipe and Boost. Sure. Um, so, so, so Boost was, was our, our absolute first. And, you know, I, I, I think we've, We've seen the success of a, a lot of models connecting um, micro merchants um, to, to to stock, um, as well as helping them streamline that process, making sure inventory management is, is seamless, timely, um, at a much better price at a much better rate. Right? Uh, I think we've definitely seen a lot of those models being successful. Um, Mike, obviously, with his um, experience being CEO at Zona after all those years, taking them, you know, through all these large fundraisers and really taking through taking making a company grow about the country um, and having lots of experience with 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 micro merchants um, it was a little bit of a no-brainer right like he came with a vision that you know building boost from the start to be in multiple countries um, with a team that was both mature as well as really excited at the opportunity um, so much of it was just right and and I think that you know in the pilot market of Ghana they had already seen some really interesting traction um, and they were already quickly lining up 
um, opportunities in South Africa as well as Nigeria. So it's from day one, you just meet a guy who's, you know, building multiple countries at the same time, has walked the path before as well, um, and is building a business model that has been proven out elsewhere on the continent um, with the right partners. I I don't know how how else you could be more excited about business. All right. Um, in terms of the the gap that you're filling, in terms of this, this, this wait, let me start that question again. Um, how important is the the gap that you're filling with this fund in terms of early stage pre seed funding? Sure, I, I I I think it's incredibly important because you know while there's been so many initiatives to try and catalyze the the angel community uh, in Africa, I think it could still use uh, another bit of a boost, right? And then what we've heard time and time again um, is even angels would like to see you know someone else uh, who's participating in the round who might have done a little bit more rigorous due diligence, who has a bit more of an institutional background, um, who might provide a little bit more structured support than what they can, right? So we, we, we hope that by being a part of these rounds, we're able to catalyze, you know, more capital in, whether that's from angels that have been inspired because of us to, to jump in as well, um, or, or other institutions who are looking for a partner on the ground to invest alongside. Um, I, I think certainly speaking to investors all across the world, many of them have a a very keen interest to do more work in Africa, even at the earliest of stages. But they do need they do need a partner investor who's based on the ground, who understands the market, um, who can really do a lot of the legwork that you know they just can't right now. So you know we we see our impact not just as our own capital, but but really as a, a catalyst for other capital to to join us in these rounds. That's interesting. Um, my impression is that sometimes people can be a bit sniffy about rounds of these, of these ticket sizes. Um, but yeah, people that are like that, not really understanding quite how crucial it is for a, for a startup at very early stages to act as just some form of investment. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely see, you know, a lot of um, a lot of investments out there, sorry, a lot of investors out there and a lot of potential programs out there who, you know, inject $10,000, $20,000 into these businesses. And, and very often that's just not enough to, to build something at scale or build something in the right way, right? Like I think if you were building a $10,000 business versus a $100,000 business, sorry, I mean, if you were building a business $10,000 versus $100,000, how you build the architecture, the kind of people you hire, how you approach business development just becomes like completely different, right? Like what you're able to, to afford and start building in. And so I think if we want to continue to, to see more, you know, superstars out there, we really need to enable more founders to build, you know, a business from day one um, as if it's going to be a multi-country, multi-product, 100-person company, you know. Um, and, I, and I think injecting sufficient amount of capital at the earliest of stages will hopefully help catalyze that. Yeah, and another thing that will help capitalize is sort of visible, tangible success stories. Um, but how are you... How are you um, sort of accounting for risk when it comes to investing 25 to 50K in very much untried, untested African tech startups? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think 
ultimately we we hope to invest you know a hundred thousand two hundred thousand dollars in each one of them that that are successful so in fact that that first investment being 25 50 is is already a de-risking mechanism that's sort of our way of seeing what you can do with you know a relatively significant amount of capital over a six to nine month period um so that's already our way of de-risking um, and I think for us, you know, we, we don't, we don't, we don't invest if we don't know founders really well. And so we definitely do triangulate and make sure we spend enough time understanding each founder and their ambitions. Um, we spend a lot of time, um, with people that know them, people that have had, you know, different business interactions with them. And I think ultimately, you know, a lot of the risk at this earliest stages is in the people that have started the business and are and are founding the business, right? So we spend a lot of time on that um, as opposed to, you know, what their product really is or what flaws are in their technical platform. We spend less time on that. Um, but we hopefully will dive into those aspects of it during the six to nine month period whereby we actually are building alongside them. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned that you'll put potentially more money into startups down the line. I mean, how, how far does Sherpa go on this on this journey with these these businesses? I mean, are, are, you, are you in launch to exit kind of VC firm or do you see yourself transitioning out as, as like bigger investors come in? Uh, we absolutely see ourselves transitioning out, but, but we do want to make sure that we follow on to, to the next round um, where, where it makes sense. Um, so we, we will invest, we target to invest $50,000 in, in the first round, but we aim to quickly follow one of a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars on in the next round, which we anticipate to be within a nine to 12 month period. Um, I've seen articles on the launch of the fund describe you as a startup veteran, uh, which I'm sure you can take positively or negatively. Um, your, I'm not that old. <laughs> you have a couple of years now messing around in the African tech startup space. I mean, what kind of developments have you seen? I mean, could you imagine this kind of critical mass of funding going into pre-seed startups five years ago? Absolutely not. And, 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 and I think the fundamental reason as to why really is around how five years ago, I don't feel that there were that many pre-seed startups that could take in that much capital or had the infrastructure to be able to take in that much capital. So I, I think we've not only come a long way in terms of, you know, the standout successes, but we've come a long way in terms of, you know, regularly seeing strong companies at the earliest of stages, you know, with the right kind of founders behind them, the right mindsets. Um, I think even from a deal flow perspective, things are, uh, have come a huge, huge way. And I, and I think like finally on that, you know, I think from, from a fundraising perspective, you know, we, we just really didn't have five years ago enough end-to-end -end success stories for, for GPs like us to, to go out and, and raise capital um, to, to fund people at the very beginning of their journey. So I think, you know, both from a, you know, deal flow perspective as well as from, a, you know, stories to aid and fundraising for LPs perspective, like, yeah, we, we are miles apart from where we were five years ago. It's just incredible to, to see. I, I certainly would never have dreamed that it would have matured so quickly um, to this extent. Um, it's just been incredible. Pitch the pod. 
Hello, my name is Sidney Aibogun. I'm the founder and CEO of Cashbox. Cashbox operates in the fintech industry. We are a digital savings platform located in Lagos, Nigeria. We, we are helping users save money all from the comfort of their phone who are any an interest on savings at no monthly charge or cost to the users. Cashbox is basically an online piggy bank. We presently have over 30,000 users. We help our users save about $150,000 every month. We've been, we've been bootstrapping since inception and we'd like to raise about $600,000 so we can expand and grow the business. Cashbox can be found on our apps are all live on Android and iOS. We also have the web app. And we, we presently have a monthly standoff of about 2,000 users month on month. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Disrupt Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to tell all your friends and colleagues that they can listen to the podcast on any of their favorite podcasting platforms. And we'll be back in two weeks' time. Goodbye. Bye.